I think you have to look at what they're saying and what they're saying they're going to expect from companies management. At this point, they don't want just things that sound good about a convertible commitment that just sounds good. My reading is that they don't really aren't expecting companies to, in a knee-jerk fashion, go to some extreme on sustainability, climate, or any other ESG issues. They want to see nuance. They want to see that the company's strategy, as well as its policies and procedures and actions, are tied in a thoughtful way to the company's strategy and the company's circumstances. And they want to know that senior management and board are informed, involved, and thinking about these things. ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, on the ESG Report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. This is Tom Fox. Today I began a two-part podcast series on the recently released Hughes Hubbard ESG Resource Guide. In this podcast series, I interview Brian Silliman, Sandra Poe, and Andrew Fowler about the creation of this incredible resource for the ESG compliance and legal practitioner. I know you will enjoy both episodes. Today, part one. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and you are in for a treat today. Today, I have with me Brian Sullivan, Sandra Poe, and Andrew Fowler. They are all with Hughes Hubbard, who have released a document. I'm going to read the entire name of it. How to ESG, a resource guide for establishing an ESG program for your company. That's a very long title, but it doesn't begin to describe the depth, breadth, and scope of this document. So on behalf of the ESG consuming public, I'm going to start by saying thank you guys for putting this resource guide out. And we're going to go into it in a little more detail. And we're going to, of course, link to it in the show notes as well. But if we could start with, could you tell us each about the nature of your practice? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us on your program. We're really delighted to talk to you about the work that we've done. And we're certainly very delighted to be in the talking about it phase and finished with the writing about it phase. So at least for now, my practice is I advise alternative asset managers and institutional investors. I advise them primarily in fund formation, product development, regulatory compliance. But one of the most relevant areas also that we'll be getting to is advising them in terms of governance and fiduciary decision making. I also some often assist our enforcement and investigations teams when they're working with clients in this area. And of course, I work with ESG and impact funds and specialty bespoke products that affect ESG and impact. Sure. And again, thank you for having us with you today. My practice is focused on capital markets, securities offerings, and disclosure matters for the most part, although I do some general corporate and advisory as well. And my interest in this area is really driven by a couple of things. One is that it's obviously unfolding very quickly. There's going to be a lot of changes and a lot of required recalibration, I think, of corporate leadership's views on some things and in terms of getting ready for the new disclosures, getting ready for the ways that the larger issues of climate change and social responsibility and other ESG issues impact businesses and the expectations of the investment community and the regulators. And I come at it partially because one of my focuses is aviation finance and, of course, the aviation 
industry has been one of the leading industries impacted first by noise regulations, then by pollution issues and various other things. They're actually finding themselves, I think, to some degree, a little bit ahead of some of the other industries. That's been an interesting prism to look at this too. Brian? Yes, great to be with you. Again, Tom, thank you very much for having us. It's always a pleasure. So my practice is really focused on compliance, part of the anti-corruption internal investigation practice group based out of our Paris office and companies with really the full spectrum of compliance topics, both within companies, helping them establish programs, doing internal investigations, responding to regulatory requests, dealing with monitorships. And from a subject matter perspective, we've seen in a get into this compliance broadening as a topic from a focus to laws like the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act now to include a lot more human rights issues and ESG is coming into the compliance scope quite a bit. Very pleased to be with you to discuss the resource guide and topics. Thanks to each of you. Asadra, if I could perhaps start with you by asking, what's the genesis of the ESG Resource Guide. Before you answer that, is that the right way to refer to it, the ESG Resource Guide? Yeah, perfect. Internally, we were shorthanding it as the toolkit for a long time, but the toolkit metaphor started to get tiresome, so Resource Guide works for us. To Andrew's credit, before we started the ESG practice, he had launched something called the Renewable Energy Finance Practice. We do quite a lot of work in our private lending and bonds practice, working with renewable energy projects. And once he got that established, Brian and I discussed with him the fact that a lot of the work at Hughes Hubbard is around sustainability is much broader than just our renewable energy finance practice. And that it was timely to bring it all together and launch the ESG practice at Hughes Hubbard. From there, once we got the group together, the ESG practice, another one of our partners, Laura Perkins, mentioned it's very, I don't want to say traditional. One of the ways that Hughes Hubbard tries to contribute to practice, legal practice in general, he's going to publish quite a few books largely in Brian's practice area. And she suggested you should think about publishing something like that in this area. And then heard what she said. And I started thinking about the fact that before I was a private practice partner, I had quite a few years of experience in-house in GC and CLO roles. And I thought it would be a really good idea if we could produce something that was relatively plain English, like really very user-friendly, because for companies addressing this, time is really of the essence. And to try to help them unpack and understand quickly, what's the aim here of bringing ESG into your company and creating a program? So that's how it all came together. So the structure or the organization of the resource guide. Could you say a few words about that as well? In the interest of pragmatism and trying to be useful, we start out with trying to make sense of the landscape. We discuss a lot of the terminology that's out there and a lot of the resources. And one of the first things, so when a company decides I'm going to have an ESG program, the first thing they got to say, what does even that mean to my company? So we really try to first address, if you try to undertake that, like you're going to encounter really a lot of terminology and a lot of publications that are out there. And so how do you make sense of this already very rich, complex landscape of information and tools and guidance and make it relevant to your company? And then the next chapter is really about helping people orient themselves to the breadth of this endeavor about all the different types of folks who have 
likely be useful to have them contribute to the genesis of your ESG program. Of course, we talk, we're lawyers, we talk about regulations from all the different jurisdictions. Then we talk about specifically how they affect three particular classes of companies and clients, companies that are in the business of lending and borrowing in the Andrews practice, operating companies and companies that are either investment advisors or investment funds, because they have a big slice of this landscape as well. We've highlighted a few other topics that people might otherwise as being relevant. Pertinent. It's not just a climate discussion. It's not just diversity, equity, inclusion discussion. So we highlighted a few other topics. And then we also talked about investigations and enforcement, which frankly is really, we're really in the early days. There's some saber rattling. There's a lot of warnings being given by regulators, but I think we still haven't seen where that's going to go completely. So that's the scheme of the book. Brian, you use a term that I'm not sure if you coined, but it's certainly appropriate, and I hope more people will use it going forward, and that's the ESG response team. It seems to be a concept that is taken from a wide variety of other areas, but why do you feel an ESG response team is so critical for any of the constituents or clients who are addressed in the ESG resource guide? One of the things that became clear as we were developing the guide was that there's so much discussion about the topic of ESG that it can be easy to get lost in the noise. And it means different things to different companies. It means different things to different organizations. And so what's going to be most relevant from an ESG perspective for your particular company or organization is going to depend on your sector, your industry, your geographic footprint. And so having that conversation with a variety of stakeholders internally is going to be critical. And taking the viewpoints of different departments, different members of management is going to be going to be really important because it's going to necessitate data from different departments, data from different parts of the organization. We contrast that to complying with a specific law like the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. That's going to sit largely with compliance function. But here we're talking about topics that range from diversity, equity, inclusion, workplace safety, which may sit within HSE. So you have human resources, HSE, legal and compliance, certainly finance. It's a key part of the discussion, but figuring out who those internal stakeholders are and bringing them to the table to make sure you've got a full view of your activities and you're really focusing on ESG topics that are most relevant to your organization we felt was critical. And that's why we recommend this the formation of this response team as early as possible in the process to help develop the program. Let me turn the topic to ESG and funding. What are some of the critical issues you all have identified or see for private equity, lenders, financial institutions, those seeking capital investments? And I'm going to throw in insurance companies because I see a huge impact there. And maybe if you could say a few words about that topic. A couple of things that one is that A lot of this is making sure that companies are prepared for the possible expectations of investors. And particularly, I think, to your point, they'll want to make sure that they're not lagging, particularly with respect to their industry peers. Because I think we may see, as time goes by, we may see and probably will see a couple of classes. They'll be like the head of class with respect to getting one's act together with the new regulatory environment and expectations. And there'll be folks who are caught either catching up or worse yet, they're not out there figuring out proactively how all this is going to impact them. So in terms of what how that would impact funding, it is a little early, but I think we're going to start that companies that are viewed as not 
really having gotten ahead of this will be disadvantaged in terms of funding. And we've in the past had conversations about the insurance point, which I think is a very good one, because it may be that even if a company feels that they are not, that perhaps the impact of some of these issues is not as material for them. If it turns out that there are other commercial players or other stakeholders, including entities like suppliers or potential business partners, investors, or others who feel differently, and including those who are going to insure the insurance industry, I think is going to be a driver of a lot of the, the... It's very hard to objectively deny that, let's say, a particular change in emissions or energy supply issue or weather is not impacting one's company. If your insurers are saying, we don't really want to participate with the same level if insurers are writing off a portion of an industry due to their view of the high level of risk. So I think in terms of the way that you know funding and investors are going to look at this, if you're a fund manager, you certainly don't ever want to be out there with someone picking apart your decisions, or if you're an investor or someone even who does strategic relationships within one large company that's looking for opportunities with others and looking for partnerships, or some a lot of companies in, the, in this space do venture, equivalent of venture or incubator investing. You don't want anyone to look at a decision you made and say, on hindsight, these folks invested in a company that clearly isn't toward the top half of the class in terms of getting their compliance with the ESG Act together. So I think the short version is that those companies that don't really proactively get themselves engaged, and that's really what Brian was saying about having a team, knowing what your exposures are, knowing what your risks are, and being able to intelligently and rationally explain to the investor community how you reached the decisions that you made about mitigation or about how perhaps even saying that it doesn't affect us. If that story doesn't fit together, I think we're going to see those entities throughout the finance ecosystem. I think they're going to be significantly disadvantaged. For public companies, I think it's an interesting landscape out there. But if, if I were to say one thing that they could, should really focus on as a top priority, it would be to focus on what BlackRock and the other State Street Vanguard, the other large index and ETF managers are saying about what they're expecting from their invested companies. Same goes true for other large mutual funds that own a lot of public company. That's such a huge part of the investor sector. They, hold, they just collectively hold a huge amount of public float right now. So I think you have to look at what they're saying and what they're saying they're going to expect from companies' management. At this point, they don't want just things that sound good about a convertible commitment that just sounds good. My reading is that they don't really aren't expecting companies to, in a knee-jerk fashion, go to some extreme on sustainability, climate, or any other ESG issues. They want to see nuance. They want to see that the company's strategy, as well as its policies and procedures and actions, are tied in a thoughtful way to the company's strategy and the company's circumstances. And they want to know that senior management and board are informed, involved, and thinking about these things. All these companies, not hard to know what they're thinking. Many of them, if not all of them, have already commented, for example, on the SEC operating company climate risk, initial disclosure of climate risks proposal. So you can read their comment letters. Certainly, they're all very vocal every proxy season about what they're expecting. So I think there's a lot of places you can look to see what's on their mind. And collectively, they speak for a lot of the investment dollars in public companies. So could I turn that same question 
to key ESG issues for operating companies. What do you see in that area? Sandra made the point earlier that ESG is not just about climate or the E, environmental issues. Obviously, those are very significant issues and get a lot of the attention, rightfully. But for many companies, those might not be the most relevant ESG issues for their organization. Certainly, if you're in the agricultural sector or extractive industries, oil and gas, environmental GHG emissions, disclosure requirements are going to be extremely relevant. But for other sectors, there may be different ESG issues that are more pertinent. For tech companies, those could be data privacy issues or broader workplace social issues. Here in in Europe, there's a lot of focus across sectors on supply chain, supply chain management, and human rights-related issues that can arise out of a company's supply chain. Getting a handle on the full extent of how a product is supplied is going to be a major ESG focus for a lot of different companies, a lot of different sectors. So I think an environmental aspects get a lot of the publicity. And again, I think that's warranted, but it does warrant taking a broader view and thinking of some of these other issues that fall within the ESG. That's all extremely, particularly for companies that are global in operation. A lot of the issues that Brian mentioned are particularly important because when you're looking at the scope of the impact, particularly to large companies, they're looking at various national and international and sometimes regional and state regulatory regimes. And I think one of the most important things for an operating company is if they haven't already figured out where the push points are, where they think that either their current or future operations and goals are going to get impacted by ESG issues. I can't emphasize how important it is that they really need to have a strategy. And before you have a strategy, you need to know what the impact points are. And I'm hopeful that many companies will understand that it's not great to have the threat of we're being evaluated against competitors, the motivating factor. But the only thing worse than that is if you don't live up to that, dealing with the consequences. So for operating, we talk about this in the guide, but I think it's really important that they identify what the issues are that really make sure they were aware of for in terms of their industry and their sector and their operations, where are the places where they're going to be touched by ESG issues, really come up with some way of Internally, who's going to be dealing with this? So putting together the right teams, if they don't already have those people, identifying leader internal leadership that's going to lead these initiatives and making sure that they have the right data to respond effectively to the regulatory requirements, the disclosure requirements. And I think that we've been talking about the regulatory compliance aspect, but there's a piece of this which is equally, if not more important, which is just competitiveness, period. And for a lot of these companies, by definition, we're talking about impacts that are material. So hopefully they are in a position to already see and assess these things. And maybe that hopefully would help many companies just flow from that to addressing the regulatory and compliance and disclosure issues. But I think it's most critical that they identify the issues, identify the folks who are going to deal with them, and have a good strategy that is thought through and defensible if anybody says, how did you guys come up with how you decided to deal with this? So some of it is common sense, but a lot of it is driven by the technical requirements around the particular, in my world, the disclosure points, for example, around suppliers. When that rolls in, it's going to be, I think, an interesting thing. So there's a lot of pieces that they're going to have to come to grips with. 
gentlemen and lady, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time before this episode. But before we leave, Sandra, I wanted to ask you maybe if you could tell us where listeners might be able to go to find out more information and download a copy of the ESG resource. If folks want to get a copy of the guide, it's available for download on the Hughes Hubbard and Me website, which is hugheshubbard.com. I hope you'll join us again next week for part two of this two-part podcast series on the Hughes Hubbard ESG Resource Guide.